We're continuing on in our series in Genesis. Um, we're looking at Genesis 42 this evening. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, then please do turn with me to Genesis 42. I must admit, Genesis is much easier to find than James, isn't it? Um, so if we're struggling to find Genesis, it's the first book. Okay, it's really, really easy to find that one. Genesis 42. And so Genesis 41 finished off with Joseph's rise to power. And so we pick up in Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Get on and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies, and you've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. And one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you. You are spies. By this you will be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, and your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. For I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But he did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. 
and to give them provisions for the journey, this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you're not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. And Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring back him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Shul. Tonight as we um, think about Genesis 42, I think we're gonna see this idea of dealing with Egypt, okay? And we're thinking both about salvation and we're also thinking about sanctification. Because Joseph was involved not just about his brothers and family's salvation, yes, they needed grain, but he was also concerned with their sanctification. And isn't it the same with Jesus? Let's pray and ask for God's help as we think about these verses this evening. Father, as we come to your word, we are thankful that you speak. And so as we prayed this morning, would you give us eyes to see, would you give us ears to hear, but would you also give us hearts with a deep, deep, deep desire to grow in godliness, to be sanctified, to become more and more like Christ Jesus. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Egypt, Egypt, well, we can... Uh, we can understand why none of the brothers wanted to go there, can't we? Egypt. I wonder if that was one of those words, one of those words that was kind of an unwritten rule within the house. You do not mention that word, Egypt. Surely there was a, a sense of, of shame that they felt when the brothers heard this word, or at least we imagine that to be the case. We kind of hope that that's the case, don't we? We imagine that they're 
there's surely a conscience within the brothers that whenever they hear that word Egypt, they would think to themselves, we should not have done that. Selling our brother off into slavery, that was evil, that was sinful, that was wrong. Egypt, no doubt, <laughs> we'll go anywhere but Egypt. And yet Egypt is where they must go, isn't it? Jacob had learned that there was grain for seal there, and so he says to his sons, why do you look at one another? Off you go and get some. And he asked the question, doesn't he? And yet already we probably have a hunch as to why they don't want to go there. I doubt that Jacob was the only one to have heard that there was grain available in Egypt. Surely with all of the connections that the sons are going to have out and about with their livestock, they're bound to have heard the news. And yet, it was Egypt, right? Egypt. None of them want to think about Egypt. Perhaps it was easier for them just to block it out, pretend it never happened. The cruel selling of their brother into slavery, let's just pretend it, it didn't happen. Let's just block it out. Egypt, no, we're, we're not going to go there. And yet, they were. No matter how hard they washed their hands, they must have surely still felt dirty. But perhaps if they could just forget about Egypt, well, then maybe for a moment they'd feel clean. Maybe their life would be easier and their guilt would be less. But there was no way around it. The situation is dire at home. The cupboards are bare. It's a matter of life or death for the brothers and their families. And so they really do need to face Egypt. I wonder, is there a word? Maybe it has that same kind of guilt feeling that uh, comes within you as soon as you hear it. Maybe something in your past, a place, a person's name, a particular thing. And whenever you hear it, it's a, it's a great reminder of broken relationships. Maybe where you treated someone badly, a place that you lived or frequented. And well, while you were there, it was an especially sinful time in your life. A thing that maybe reminds you of a particular sin. And so all that needs to happen is for someone to say their name or to mention the city or to produce the item and those feelings come back. Egypt. And yet, in how God's sovereign hand rules, he brings about a situation in which the brothers are forced to deal with their guilt. And the first steps are here. And they bring them right up close back to Egypt. Verse 3. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Now, We've been working our way through the story, so we know the family situation, and already we've got a question, don't we? We see that there's 10, and we say, well, why just 10? Well, we know that Joseph was one of 12 sons, so why do only 10 travel to get the food? Isn't it the case where the more food that's brought home, the better in these famine conditions? Shouldn't 11 sons travel? Can't 11 sons carry more than 10 sons? Was it that he was feeling sick on the day? So he didn't travel. Maybe he hadn't got his passport printed in time. Well, no, it's, it's none of those things. In fact, Moses, the author, tells us what the reason is, verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his bro brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. It seems that in the time since Joseph had disappeared from the scene, presumed dead, that Jacob has taken a new favorite 
This time, it's the other son of his favored wife, Rachel, whose name is Benjamin. And Jacob was happy to risk the other 10 boys, but not his precious Benjamin. For he feared that something might happen to him. You see, some things hadn't changed, had they? All of these years had passed, and yet Jacob's obvious favoritism of one of his children was still there. And so the other boys, they set off. And now the scene switches from the land of Canaan to Egypt. And as a result of Joseph being lifted up from the pit and brought from prison and given the role of second in command, now Joseph finds himself as the governor over all of the land. He controls it. What a change in fortunes. And what takes place almost immediately when the brothers arrive almost stuns us with the simplicity of of how it all plans out. Because there he is, Joseph, and his brothers come in, and what do they do? We are told that they bow down before him. They bow down before him. Now, if you have been here uh, over the last few Sunday nights and following the story with us, well, then you will know the significance of what has just taken place there. Because remember the first dream that Joseph had some 20 years earlier, the one where Joseph's sheaf uh, arose and stood upright, and what happens? The brother's sheaves, they gathered around it, and they bow down to his sheaf. And what was the, the brother's response when Joseph relayed his dream to them? Well, they scoffed at him, didn't they? <laughs> they laughed, and they were saying, are you indeed to reign over us? And they were incredibly angry at the thought, weren't they? They can't ever imagine a time when they would bow down before their brother Joseph. No, no, that will never be the case. Well, what we're witnessing is the outworking of that very dream, isn't it? Here the brothers were bowing down to Joseph, and yet they didn't even realize what they were doing as they fulfilled the first of the dreams. Verse 8 tells us that Joseph recognized his brothers, and yet they did not recognize him. And it makes sense, doesn't it? 20 years have passed. They're not expecting him, maybe still to be alive even, let alone the governor in charge of Egypt. And here they were. They were all dressed like Hebrew men, long beards, the usual Hebrew fashion on display. And Joseph, well, now he's all clean-shaven, and he's dressed in an Egyptian manner. And Joseph doesn't just remember his brothers, does he? No, he also remembers the dreams that are given by God. Not one dream, but two dreams. And although his first dream doesn't tell us the numbers of brothers bowing down to him, the second dream regarding the sun and the moon and the 11 stars covers the finer, finer details, doesn't it? And this dream was, was still to be fulfilled. Not only would Joseph be reunited with his 10 brothers, but also his other brother, Benjamin, his father, and his mother, Leah. It's a little insight into what's to come in the story, isn't it? But for Joseph, this was surely a reminder. What God says will happen, will happen. What God says will happen, will happen. God's word can be trusted. And maybe you're here this evening and you need to know, you need to hear that reminder. God's word can be trusted. What God says, he will do he will do. And so the brothers, they bow down to him. And so we see the beginning of a, a testing process that Joseph goes through to see if there's been any real 
change that's taken place over the last 20 years? Were these the hard-hearted brothers that had thrown him into the well and then sold him for silver? Or had something happened in the interim period? Had anything happened in their hearts? And so we see that Joseph speaks to them roughly, flips the situation, doesn't it? Now, now he's the one who speaks to them roughly, and let's see how they cope when they're feeling uncomfortable, when they're feeling threatened, when the shoe's in the other foot. He starts off and he says, oh, where do you come from? And they told him, Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph, he pushes back. He says, no, you're spies, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, verse 10, no, my Lord, your servants have just come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. We're, we're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Well, maybe they were never spies. But you must have wondered how Joseph felt when he heard them say, we are honest men. <laughs> because honest men, they were not. And yet, that was their plea. And so in verses 12 to 13, we see Joseph push back again. And this time, the brothers reveal that the youngest brother is still at home with their father and that one of their brothers is no more. You have to wonder what way they said that, don't, don't you? <laughs> I wonder, was, was it evident that the loss of that 12th brother was weighing heavily on their mind? And yet little did they know that here he was, the man who was standing before them was that very man. But Joseph pushes back again against their claims. Verse 14, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. They were put in custody for three days. See, this is a chapter that's really about testing. It's really about testing. Joseph mentions it twice in these verses. What he is doing is he is testing them. He's testing them. Are their lives still marked with lies and selfish, evil intent? Or has there been some transformation that's taken place? Were their lives now marked with truth and righteousness? Were they really the honest men that they claimed to be? Had God been at work in their lives? And so they're placed in prison for three days. And after three days, they're raised out of prison by Joseph. Joseph shows grace and kindness to his brothers, and he, he sends them back home with grain for the family. Only one brother must stay behind, and they must return to Egypt with their younger brother, Benjamin. And if they do, we are told that then they will live. They will live. And only then will they receive more grain. And so in one sense, what do we see here is Joseph's providing for them salvation. He saves their family. He gives them grain that they need so that they will not die. But notice the reason that Joseph gives for his kindness. Do you see this? Verse 18. The reason that Joseph gives is this. He says, for I fear God. I fear God. Joseph declares that he fears the supreme God. And surely this was unusual if this man was really an Egyptian. 
And look at the response that it brings about. Because this is the the first time that we see the brothers own their sin and recognize that they are guilty before God. Listen to what they said. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And then listen to Reuben. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You pick up the kind of language that was used there. There's recognition of guilt, isn't there? There's talk of sin and the fact that they deserve punishment. And as a result, in Reuben's mind at least, this is now why they find themselves in this very situation. And it seems that they now find themselves in a period of of suffering. And what has happened is it it has really worked in their hearts. Their hearts seem much softer. They're able to empathize with their younger brother and the situation that he must have found himself in at this point. But it seems that in this time of suffering, they've also been brought to their senses regarding their own sin. And often that's the case, isn't it? Often that's how God works. People are just going about quite happily, ignoring God, suppressing the truth about God, living for themselves and worshiping whatever little handmade gods that they've created. And then suffering comes along and it blows the little handmade gods to smithereens because their handmade gods are no help whatsoever. They prove to be worthless. And there is a, a sense in which the reality of, of not actually being in control confronts them once again with the one true living God who is in control and who rules over all things. The one who demands to be worshipped. The one who is holy and cannot stand sin. It seems that God uses suffering here as a significant marker in the brother's spiritual journey. Remember listening to the, the late Tim Keller saying that the majority of his congregation had a similar story. And he said their story was something like this. They were just going about life and they were quite happy. And then something happened. The marriage crisis, death of a family member, bankruptcy, whatever it was, and it plunged them into suffering. And it was at this point, it was this point that they had come to faith. And often, often that is how God works. It's not everyone's story, but it's certainly a common story, isn't it? And as we read about the brothers, we have to wonder, is that their story? Because that's where we start to see some changes taking place. Seems that for these brothers, their own suffering had brought them to their spiritual senses. And yet even up until this point, we know that God has already been at work. God has already been at work to bring about their salvation. I mean, that's God's purpose in having Joseph in Egypt in the first place, isn't it? That's quite something. Joseph has set these men a test. Will they come back for their brother? Or will they take the money and run? It's a test that they had failed before, isn't it? And so would they do the same this time? But notice Joseph has also shown them great kindness. Do you see that? He's shown great kindness to his brothers. In verse 25, we're told that he gave orders to fill all their bags with grain, but to replace the money that they had given for it, and also to provide them with further provisions for the journey. 
See, here Joseph is, is taking the first steps to reconciliation, isn't he? I mean, the men have not sought forgiveness from Joseph, and yet he still shows them kindness, lavish kindness. And I wonder, is there someone that you could show kindness to this evening? Maybe it could be the first steps to sparking forgiveness and and reconciliation. Perhaps like Joseph, it may well be an estranged family member. And actually, Joseph's kindness is to his brothers points us to the kindness of God, doesn't it? As we look at his kindness, we're reminded of the kindness of God towards each one of us. For each of us here, God has not dealt with us as we deserve, because like the brothers in the story, we are not honest men either. In fact, our stories carry the array of sin that we have already seen carried out by the brothers so far in the story of Genesis, and much more besides. And what we deserve is judgment. What we deserve is to be struck down dead and to face the wrath of God poured out upon us. That's what we deserve. And yet, and yet, even in God being patient and not having already brought that about, we have enjoyed God's kindness. Each breath, God's kindness. A fridge with milk, God's kindness. Friends to enjoy coffee with, God's kindness. Haven't each one of us experienced the kindness of God? But as Romans reminds us, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So this evening, I wonder, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Perhaps you're here this evening and you're not a Christian. Perhaps you're realizing that against a holy God you have sinned and that you deserve punishment. And perhaps you're, you're, you're looking at your life and you recognize this evening that God has been kind to you. God has been kind to you. He has given you much that you do not deserve. This evening, as you recognize that, as you recognize God's kindness towards you, it's supposed to lead you to repentance. Supposed to lead you to pray to God saying that you recognize your sin against him and that you are sorry for your sin. Supposed to lead you to come to him seeking forgiveness of sin and to turn away from your sin and to follow after him. Because one day, this is going to happen, one day just like the brothers bowed before Joseph, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ, confessing that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And like the dream that came to pass, this is a future reality. This really will happen. And so the question for each of us is, will we buy as someone who has submitted to his lordship in this life? Will we know him as our savior and as our Lord? You see, as we recognize God's kindness towards us, it's supposed to lead us to repentance. And as we look at the story of Joseph and how Joseph shows lavish kindness to his brothers, we can't help see a picture of the lavish kindness of God towards us. Well, Joseph's brothers, they they head off on their donkeys 
And as one of them opens up the sack to feed his donkey on it, he finds the money in the mouth of his sack. Verse 28. And he said to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts feel them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? It seems that Egypt has brought about a change in these men. Once again, we see them humble, don't we? They're not the rough, gruff men that proudly sold Joseph into slavery with no fear of man or of God, but here they tremble and they fear God. What is it that God has done to us, they ask? And so they arrive home and they tell their father what's happened a blow-by-blow blow account of, of all that's going on. Well, not quite everything. They, they don't tell them that they all ended up in prison. They, they leave that bit out. And perhaps promising that they could trade in the land is more than Joseph had given them in promise at this point. But they do say that we need the other brother. We need Benjamin. And we need to go to Egypt. But look at verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that when it comes to what's happened to Joseph, Jacob lays the blame at the feet of his brothers. Do you see that? And you have to wonder, don't you? You have to wonder if, if over the years, Jacob has come to have his, some suspicions about the story that he was told. Some suspicions about the story about what may have happened to Joseph. And as the sons arrive back from the land of Egypt, one son down, and with lots of money in their sacks, I wonder if this was the point which may have clarified it in his mind. Because it all sounds somewhat familiar, doesn't it? Isn't that what happened the very day that Joseph disappeared? The sons come back from the direction of Egypt, one son is missing. And there is an unusual amount of money in the brothers' pockets. And as Jacob faces that situation once more, there is one thing of which he is certain. Benjamin shall not go to Egypt. And Reuben, he tries to persuade his dad. Reuben says, Dad, if anything should happen to Benjamin while we go to Egypt, you can kill my two sons. It's hard to really understand what his reasoning as to how this would improve the situation. Can you imagine? Uh, let's try and improve the situation. I'll kill your two grandchildren. Will that help? I, I can't see it helping. But Jacob's mind isn't up for changing, is it? Verse 38, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Shoal. 
for Jacob, the risk is too large, isn't it? The risk is too great. For to him, his life is, is bound up in that of his son. Although he has 11 sons that he's aware of, he actually has 12, there is only one, Benjamin. Now imagine for a moment if you were one of the other brothers. How would it make you feel? You'd certainly feel valued, wouldn't you? The favoritism that has started the hatred of, of, of Joseph back in Genesis 37, well, it's still so stark and so obvious in this family, isn't it? But it's not just the sin of favoritism that's the issue. It's really the sin of idolatry, isn't it? Because that's really what we see here. That's what Jacob really says. He says, if there's anything is to happen to my son, then my life would not be worth the living. That's really what he says, isn't it? And that is what idolatry is. Idolatry is when something else takes the place that only God should have. It's anything other than God in which we would say, if you were to take away this, then my life would not be worth the living. That's what idolatry is, isn't it? And sometimes, sometimes it can be the best of gifts. The best of gifts. In this case, it's a child, it's a son. A wonderful gift from God and yet a really bad God. You see, Jacob still needed God to work on his heart. The double-mindedness that we've talked so much about from the book of James was evident in the life of Jacob, wasn't it? He needed to be sanctified. And it seems that it's going to take some more time for that to work its way out. He needed to be single-mindedly set and pleasing his God and God alone. And so do we this evening. So do we. As we think about James and what James says about suffering, I wonder did these men count it all joy? Jacob, his brothers, the brothers, Joseph for that matter, I wonder did they count it joy? Because although we're only part way through the story, and we are, we're only part of the way through the story, we can see evidence that God is at work and that he is using the various trials that he was leading them through to bring about a change in their lives. You see, in heading to Egypt, it wasn't just salvation that they needed, but it was also sanctification as well. And later in the Bible, we read of another Joseph who heads to Egypt in order not to save his brothers, but to save a baby. Joseph, Mary's husband, takes the family to Egypt to save baby Jesus from King Herod. And it's to this baby, the person of Jesus, that we need to come with all of our Egypts, with all of the things that cause guilt and shame, we must bring all of our sin and lay it at his feet. It's the only place we can have it dealt with this evening. Because through the work of the cross, Jesus has already done everything, everything to deal with our sin. It's been dealt with on the cross. That's what's been achieved. He has borne the wrath of God for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul writes in Romans, he says, there is therefore no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. But don't forget, don't forget that with this new heart, a heart cleansed and forgiven, follows a new life, a new life. Joseph wasn't just concerned about salvation, but he was also concerned about sanctification. And isn't that the same with Jesus? He doesn't just save us, but he works to sanctify us, to cleanse us, so that we might be more and more holy. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this evening that you have dealt kindly with us. And as we recognize the kindness that you've shown to us, we also see that that is supposed to lead us to repentance. Lord, might that be each of us this evening. Might we have come before you and confessed our sin, repented, and sought Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And as we live with Jesus as our Lord, we're not just saved, but you're still at work in us, sanctifying us, changing us, one degree at a time, making us more and more holy, making us more and more like Christ Jesus himself. So Father, I pray that you would continue that work and bring it to completion. Through the trials that each of us face, might we become more and more mature, perfect and complete, and lacking in nothing. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.